Let's face it, politicians today are afraid of passing any kind of law that's going to be seen as a gun control law. And if it's, uh, it, it makes it somewhat harder to, for anyone to get a firearm, they're afraid of the political backlash that they're going to confront. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from a very sunny, warm, and windy Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court, have a book out called How to Get Sued, and we would like to take this time to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys, and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law, Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com, and LexisNexis, a leading provider of information and business solutions to professionals in a variety of industries at LexisNexis.com. And Bob, I know you write a couple of blogs, if not three or four. <laughs> I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. Um, well, Craig, the uh, the recent shootings in, in Tucson rocked the nation and, and the world. Arizona Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords was gravely injured after she was shot in the head by a gunman who's been identified as Jared Lee Loeffner at a political event at a Safeway grocery store in Tucson. Loeffner allegedly used a Glock 19 semi-automatic handgun. In his wake, he left six people dead, including a federal judge and a nine-year-old girl and 12 others injured. Well, according to the United States Constitution, as we all know, the Second Amendment grants individuals the rights to bear arms. And since this tragedy, a nationwide gun debate has raged on between gun rights supporters and gun control supporters. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at the law at the heart of this debate and the new legislation prompted by the shootings. To help us do that today, we're going to have two guests. Uh, first off, uh, I'd like to welcome to the program uh, Professor David B. Kopel. Uh David is a an expert on gun control and gun rights. He's research director at the Independence Institute, a think tank in Colorado. He's an associate policy analyst at the Cato Institute and an adjunct professor of advanced constitutional law at Denver University's Sturm College of Law. He's the author of 12 books, uh, and by my count, some nine of them are deal directly with gun control and gun rights and more than 80 scholarly journal articles. His amicus briefs uh, in the uh, District of Columbia versus Heller case and the McDonald versus Chicago cases at the at the Supreme Court were cited in the uh, opinions of justices uh, in those case. He's also a contributor to the Volokh Conspiracy legal blog, and you could find a lot more information about uh, David and uh, his many publications at DaveCopel.com. That's with a K. Uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, David Copel. Thank you very much. And Bob, our next guest is Professor Adam Winkler. He's returning to our show. He's a professor at, uh, of constitutional law at the University of California, Los Angeles. And Professor Winkler's scholarship has been cited by the United States Supreme Court in the District Columbia versus Heller case as well. 
And he was quoted in Justice Stephen Breyer's opinion. Adam also has a recent piece published in the Huffington Post, MLK and His Guns. And Professor Winkler also has a book coming out in August 2011 entitled Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer, Adam. It's good to be here. Let's let's start off with uh, kind of a generalized question about this shooting raising new issues really beyond the right to bear arms. What, what do you think is important here, David? Well, I, I think one thing we know that, that's not important is uh, how much everybody supposedly should hate Sarah Palin. It was actually kind of a, a bizarre uh, episode in American politics uh, that before anything was known uh, about the criminal, uh, some people, Marcos Miletus of the Daily Coast, Paul Krugman, the uh, really sort of paranoid and uh, jittery uh, columnist for the New York Times, were out there blaming this on uh, you know right wing and, and all the, this uh, really malicious kind of hate speech. Uh, you know, it's it's unfortunately, and Adam's Adam knows his American history pretty well. It's something that's actually gone on for a long time in American politics. You know, John F. Kennedy, our, our great president, uh, was assassinated by a guy who had defected, a communist who had defected to the Soviet Union, who was a member of the Fair Play for Cuba, that is the Castro dictatorship uh, committee, and uh, had actually uh, made plans to assassinate the head of the John Birch Society, a, a right-wing extremist organization, because they were so anti-Castro. And Yet this meme got adopted by a lot of the American media that Kennedy was killed by the climate of hate uh, in Dallas caused by right-wingers. And Kennedy was certainly unpopular with a lot of, of Texans then, but they weren't the ones who uh, killed him. He was killed by a communist. And this just keeps on going on and on, the, uh, I think, really inappropriate attempt to blame uh, people participating in our political debate uh, you know, for the acts of madmen. The uh, Unabomber, when he was finally caught, uh, had Al Gore's book, Earth in the Balance, uh, in his remote mountain cabin, heavily annotated and, and underlined. And obviously that guy was clearly motivated by uh, an extremist uh, ecological vision of things. Uh, but that doesn't mean it would be fair to blame either Al Gore or, you know, sort of genuinely uh, ecological extremists. Uh, who participate peacefully in our debate uh, for the violent actions of, of the Unabomber? I mean, I, I just want to. Well, I just want to address that. I mean, it may may be that you know you can't blame the Tea Party and you can't blame Sarah Palin, but we don't know yet that that political rhetoric didn't play some role here in uh, in influencing Jared Loftner. I mean, we we really don't know quite what uh, played a role, but clearly well, he subscribed to some pretty uh, extreme uh, uh, views, uh, you know, relating to currency and and whatnot, and 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 he kind of was was off uh, on his own for the last six months or so before this occurred. So we really can't dismiss that well, either. Can well, we? the fact that, you know, people have, uh, there are all kinds of arguments about currency and the gold standard and things like that. That doesn't mean people who raise those issues have any responsibility uh, if, if this evil guy uh, picks up some of their phrases. You know, one thing we do know is he was a truther. He was one of those people who believed this vicious set of lies that have been spread uh, with some success in the United States and quite quite a lot in uh, Europe and the Arab world, uh, saying that George Bush uh, caused 
the 9-11 attacks, not by having bad policies that caused a blowback, but actually the whole thing, the 9-11 attacks were a conspiracy organized by George W. Bush. You know, what, what a vicious, hateful lie that the president of the United States consciously uh, ordered the murder of over 3,000 American people. And we know that Loeffner believed in that. So if, if you want to find politics in him, uh, a lot of it comes from the, uh, the, the hate-filled extreme left in this country. But again, I, my personal view, you know, and if you actually thought the president had murdered 3,000 people, knocked down the two towers of the World Trade Center, uh, maybe you would think it was time to start taking uh, violent action and, and assassinating uh, political people. So whatever politics, uh, I, I don't think politics are to blame for this, and I agree with President Obama on that. But if you're going to look for a role for that, uh, you, you can look to the uh, the hard left and then the Michael Moore people who have been uh, uh, and the ones further left of Michael Moore have been spreading this uh, truth or nonsense. Well, as far as political rhetoric goes, there's probably enough blame to lay all over the place because I don't think I've yet heard a politician that hasn't been involved with some rhetoric at some point in time in their career. But in any event, uh, Adam, wh- what do you think the uh, the issue here is? Is it really gun control or is it the right to bear arms? What are we talking about in uh, in this Adam Loeffner situation? Um, well, Jared Loeffner. Uh, I don't. I don't want to be confused with him. I'm sorry, sure. Jared, Jared yeah. Loeffner. You're right. Totally sorry about different that. guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think there's obviously it's obviously stimulated a real discussion again about the place of gun control in American society. Uh, I think that we've had uh, just a number of mass murders over the uh, last ten years, and uh, and often these mass murders have not resulted in new gun control laws. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. But I think people are starting to question again whether our gun laws are too lenient and whether we're going in the wrong direction on gun control. In fact, we've uh, rather than stiffened gun control laws over the uh, last few years, um, we've had much more of a loosening of gun control laws, both uh, some minor loosening at the federal level uh, and states like Arizona have passed laws to allow people to carry uh, concealed firearms without a permit. In fact, uh, I've done some historical research, and you mentioned my book earlier, Gunfight. I should thank David Coffell, who's given me some great advice about the book as well. Uh, but if you looked at the gun control laws in Tombstone, Arizona, back in 1880, uh, they were stricter than the, the gun control laws of uh, Tombstone, Arizona today. Back then, you needed a permit to carry a concealed firearm. Today, you don't. Well, so what does that suggest to you? I don't know. I just think that we need to we need to have the discussion about gun control in our country. I think that so many political officials are afraid to touch this issue uh, because it, it has become. Uh, one of those questions that lead uh, to a lot of voters to vote against you, and a lot of people just don't want to touch it. Uh, and uh, I think it's it's worth having the discussion. Whether we enact new laws or not, uh, we should at least be discussing what kind of laws we should have. How should we balance the right of individuals to keep and bear arms, which I believe is the proper interpretation of the Second Amendment. But I also believe there is a place for gun control in America. David, you, you obviously... Uh would would take the position that nothing about this incident uh would would uh, call for stricter gun control that in fact uh you've made the argument that uh people individuals carrying guns have have prevented uh similar tragedies in the past is that well, right well sure we 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 know of at least 5 cases three of them at at uh, at Edinburgh at Edinburgh Pennsylvania at Pearl Junior High School in in Mississippi 
uh, at Appalachian uh, Law School in, in Virginia, uh, at the New Life Christian Church, and just not far from where I'm speaking to you from, down in Colorado Springs. I live up in uh, north of that. Uh, in, in 2008, where a church massacre was stopped with someone who had a permit to carry a handgun for lawful protection and was protect the security doing volunteer security at the church, and a massacre at a Shoney's restaurant in Anniston, Alabama that, that never happened, uh, again, because of lawful carry. So we know that guns in the right hands can really help public safety. And, and we also know, and then certainly the, the Tucson murderer is another example of this, guns in the wrong hands are really harmful to public safety. And what the, the, the wise policies are the ones that say we want to not impede and, and perhaps even encourage guns in the right hands while working to keep guns out of the wrong hands. And th this is, uh, the Tucson case is another situation where we had, a, we already had on the books the laws that, that could have been used, but they weren't. Since the Gun Control Act of 1968, federal law applies everywhere in the country. It's illegal to even possess a gun for a person who's been adjudicated mentally ill. And that's fair that it be adjudication because that's a, a, a fair procedure with due process and a person gets a chance for a hearing and a chance to present his side of the case and you have, you have witnesses uh, often speaking under oath. So that, that's the proper procedure for a mental adjudication and, and, and the deprivation of civil rights. Now, we also know that Loeffner got kicked out of Pima Community College because he was quite obviously a, a violent, dangerous threat. Uh, you know, and it, it says a lot for a school to, to, uh, to kick somebody out under conditions like that. And they, they did the right thing in expelling him. But then what didn't, and there, there's at least stories that haven't been, I think, probably fully tracked down. Loeffner was actually making threats to other people uh, during this the same period. So what should have been happened is we have laws in Arizona that allow for a civil commitment hearing in situations like this. And the problem was we had the breakdown in communications between the community college, which kicked him out for being violent, and then the folks in the Arizona or county government who could have initiated the commitment proceedings. Because I, I, one thing that's important is clearly you don't want a guy like that to have a gun, but I don't want him to be loose in general. You know, there was some, a woman just died on death row in, uh, of old age in, uh, Nevada a couple weeks ago, uh, was this crazy woman who had murdered six people with an automobile. She drove a, a, an SUV into a crowd of people, killed six and wounded, uh, two dozen others, you know, roughly the same toll that, that Loeffner had. So even if you had a magic magnet that got rid of all the guns, uh, it would be t too dangerous for this guy to be at large. And I, I think one of the conversations we need to have is on mental health in this country and hopefully having our mental health system uh, be less dominated by this sort of political correctness where you, they say, you know, if you're like addicted to nicotine, you know, you smoke cigarettes, uh, that that's mental illness. And, and have it really focus more on taking the, those people who are really on the, the edge, uh, this cliff of uh, danger, and uh, and having the system intervene uh, more effectively with them and, and sooner. Well, but the standards with regard to mental illness are, are matters of constitutional law, aren't they? I mean, this this idea that somebody can't be uh, detained uh, unless they are a danger to themselves or, or others uh, is a matter of, of judicial rulemaking, not legislative rulemaking. Uh, well, and it, Jared it, 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 yeah. Go ahead. The, the legislature sets the procedures for how that'll be done in any particular state. Subject to the 
standards that we have in our Constitution, which require due process before a deprivation of liberty. Um, so you, you couldn't have something where you know a, a person could be just locked up because the psychiatrist writes a note to someone. You'd have you have to have fair procedures, uh, evidence presented on on both sides. Uh, the person has the opportunity to be heard, and th- those are constitutional minimums. But I think we can obey those constitutional standards and follow the the the, the particular procedures set out by the legislature to do civil commitments. And again, Arizona has a civil commitments law already. It just was wasn't used. But is is there something that can be done about the law that would address the 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 Lofners of the world, the, the people who you know haven't been sort of caught by the system at this point? I, I, I suppose the argument is that he was caught by the system and the system didn't do anything about it. But you know, do gun control laws need to go farther in somehow uh, preventing the kind of situation that that occurred here? I, Adam, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah. In addition to in addition to Bob's question, Adam, see if you can talk about what the issues are in terms of intergovernmental communication on this point. Well, one thing that we know is that uh, that Lochner bought his firearm legally. He went to uh, a gun store and bought his firearm. And as a result, he had to go through a background check. But one thing I think this incident makes pretty clear is that our background checks are not nearly good enough to ferret out uh, those who really shouldn't be having firearms and those who should. Uh, we have uh, mental health, uh, mental illness adjudications that make you uh, a prohibited purchaser under federal law, but the, most of the states don't do complete reporting of mental health adjudications. Uh, it wouldn't have caught Lochner. He was not ever adjudicated to be mentally ill, um, but we shouldn't just be trying to stop Lochner. We should try to be stopping the next problem that arises, the next mass murder. Uh, And our background check system, the states do not, uh, are not required to report this information to the federal government. Uh, And as a result, when they do these background checks, the background checks are woefully incomplete. The background checks are done instantaneously through a computerized uh, network, and uh, they don't actually require any investigation. Uh, Now, I'm not saying that we should have a system where we uh, necessarily do investigations that are more than just a background check, but we at least need to have a background check that's more meaningful, that uh, has better information in it, where the kinds of uh, information that we've already determined make one a prohibited purchaser. We have to make sure that information is actually in the system. And if it's not in the system, then our background checks are not going to be successful. So I think at least one thing we should think about with regards to this is is improving the background check system. Part of that is also increasing governmental communication. Like David says, uh, part of the problem here in Lochner's case and, and, and other cases is that we're not having governmental institutions communicate information about concerns about the mental illness of particular people. We also know that Lochner uh, uh, was rejected from uh, uh, from serving in the military, uh, and apparently that was because of concerns about his drug use. Now, why the federal government that had information enough to determine that he was a, a habitual user of marijuana, why that information does not go into the background check um, is a real question. I think you know part of the, the reason why these background checks are not as effective as they could be is because, let's face it, politicians today are afraid of passing any kind of law that's going to be seen as a gun control law. And if it's, uh, it, it makes it somewhat harder to, for anyone to get a firearm, they're afraid of the political backlash that they're going to confront. Um, you know, you had uh, John Boehner come out and say no new gun control laws on his watch. Uh, and uh, Newt Gingrich back in 94 said no new gun control on my life. We shouldn't be saying no new gun control. We should be saying no ineffective gun control. But we should say if we can adopt laws, like David says, uh, that can do more to keep the wrong people from having firearms, we should. 
What about circumstances that arise after someone gets a gun? I mean, not all of uh, the population in the United States stays mentally healthy throughout their entire lives. They may get a gun in the beginning, but then may have a difficult time later on with depression or something else. How is it that that America can even begin to address the issues of people that already have guns that shouldn't have guns because of a developing developing or, or newly occurring mental illness? Well, or of anything else. I mean, you could be disqualified. Um, among the other things that make you a prohibited person under federal law is a felony conviction. So maybe you, you bought a gun when you were 24, and then when you were 35, you were convicted of a felony. And from that point onward, it, it's illegal under federal law uh, to possess a gun. Or you know, maybe you bought a gun when you were 21, and then you joined the Army when you were 23, and you were dishonorably discharged later. A dishonorable discharge is also uh, federal makes you a prohibited person under federal law. So there, there's all kinds of things that can come along. You know, I, mean, I suppose you could say after somebody's convicted of a felony, you're going to send the cops over to their house to search the whole place. Uh, but I, I think the the general approach is that uh, when you have those things that happen to you, like a felony conviction, one of the judge's jobs is to tell you uh, those conditions, and that if you continue to possess a gun, it'll be another uh, serious offense. I'd, I'd want to. Um, just refine a little bit of what Adam said is that there that he's right that there certainly are some people who when you say you know see any law that says uh gun in it that they would be automatically opposed to it but the uh you know the center of gravity uh in congress and in most of the state legislatures uh is where the national rifle association is they're by far the most uh powerful and you know they've got 4 million members of the the second amendment groups and after the Virginia Tech murders, the National Rifle Association supported a bill which passed Congress, and it wasn't one of those things that got in, in all the headlines because it wasn't a contentious thing. It was something where people sat down and, and thought, you know, in a realistic and pragmatic way how to make things better. And that bill improves the uh, quality of information, basically encourages federal agencies with their federal funding uh, to do this kind of re reporting of mental health adjudications. And it also improved the uh, the definitions on, on that mental health disqualification category, because there had been actually a problem of, say, Iraq or Afghanistan war veterans uh, having a, uh, you know, an Army psychologist say, well, you've got post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, and then that wrongly uh, ended up getting in the federal database as a uh, disqualification from owning gun. I mean, the fact that somebody's got a, you know, condition that makes them sad or, or whatever doesn't mean uh, that they should forfeit their civil rights. As the, the statute said originally that it had to be an, an adjudication, and uh, the reform made sure that it was an adjudication. So I, I think there's ways uh, we can work on some of the things that Adam mentioned about uh, encouraging state agencies to likewise do this mental health reporting. Uh, but again, again, we want to make sure that when you have somebody who is one entity of government takes action against, as Pima Community College did, because of plain, unmistakable, serious danger, that that doesn't end there, that you then take it to the next steps uh, and have other entities of government uh, start to uh, do what they need to do. Well, gentlemen, we need to take a quick break. When we return, more with David Kopel and Adam Winkler about the great gun debate. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? 
Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS 70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, Visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to westlegaledcenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, and I are joined by David Kopel, Research Director of the Independence Institute in Golden, Colorado, and Adam Winkler, professor of constitutional law at the University of California. Uh, both of these professors are authors of books on gun rights and gun control. And uh, Adam Winkler, in particular, has a soon-to-be-released book, Gunfight, and, and some of the history and background uh, surrounding this issue. Uh, before we get into the program, we we had uh, a, a quick clip we wanted to play. Uh Representative Carolyn McCarthy from Los Angeles has introduced uh, legislation that would make high-capacity gun clips, like like the one allegedly used by the Tucson shooting suspect, illegal. Uh, here's a 
brief clip from Carolyn McCarthy on MSNBC discussing uh, this legislation. They are not needed for the average citizen. These are basically, in addition to a gun, and I'm saying to a gun, because we are not taking away the right of anyone owning a gun. That's already been settled by the Supreme Court. But it doesn't mean that we can't do something towards gun safety to save lives. Well, David, what about that? Does the average citizen need to have a a high-capacity semi-automatic gun like the one used in Tucson? Well, I think if you asked uh, Representative Gabriel Giffords, uh, she might say that on rifles, uh, uh, magazines holding 30 or 25 to 40 rounds are actually pretty common for a lot of target shooting and sporting events uh, required by some of those events. And in fact, there's a picture of her that's been widely circulated on the web holding a a rifle, shooting it uh, with what Representative McCarthy wrongly calls a uh, a high capacity clip. It's for a rifle that those are very standard. And what Representative McCarthy wants to do is ban lots of standard capacity uh, magazines. A magazine is a rectangular, usually a rectangular detachable uh, sort of box that, that holds ammunition for a firearm. So on, on handguns, uh, it is very common these days for police officers, and I, I represented in the Supreme Court the two major law enforcement training organizations in the country, the, the people who train the police uh, in, in firearms use. Um, these it's common to have a gun with a magazine that can hold 11 rounds or 15 or 13 or something like that. And Representative McCarthy would outlaw that. I think that's plainly contrary to what the Supreme Court said in Heller, which is essentially that the guns that are commonly owned by uh, law-abiding Americans for legitimate purposes uh, can't be banned. And her her attempt to ban uh, this is, these are very common guns for the police to carry for protection, among others, and they carry them for the same reason, uh, that a regular citizen would legitimately, uh, want them for protection. Sometimes you're, you're attacked by more than one person, um, and the ability to have, say, 13 rounds, uh, instead of six, uh, could, could save your life. And then one other thing is, there, it's, it's, her bill is an example of how the, sort of the extreme end of the, the gun ban people, uh, you know, can never, they're never satisfied with, with what they can get and are always just pushing this bait and switch. So if Representative McCarthy had introduced a bill that said no, hand, no handgun magazines over 30 rounds, well, the very few people really in, in practical sense ever carry handgun magazines over 30 rounds. And you, you could argue it philosophically, but it, it wouldn't make much practical difference in handguns. It would in rifles, but not for handguns. But instead, she she brings it all the way down to 10 for all kinds of guns, which is a huge infringement. And she also says that there's millions of these magazines of standard capacity magazines of 11 or more rounds out there now. And, you know, they're not, they don't have serial numbers on them. And people who, who bought them for $25 didn't save their sales receipt from 1987 when they bought it. And she would make anybody who currently possesses one of these lawfully into a federal felon unless that person can prove his innocence by proving when he got it, which is for 99% of the lawful uh, owners right now, completely impossible because they didn't, you know, unless they're uh, also accountants besides being uh, uh, firearms owners, they probably don't save the receipt for everything they they buy. So it's a real malicious, uh, I think, bait and switch. 
Well, gentlemen, we've just about reached the end of our program, and it's time to uh, wrap up and get your final thoughts. Uh, David, let's start with you. I know that you need to leave a little bit early, so let's start with you. And maybe you could address the scope of the Second Amendment in terms of the right to bear arms, what it involves in terms of both ammunition and guns themselves. Well, as uh, Justice uh, Scalia's opinion for the court, which is however one might argue for it, for or against it, one way or another, uh, it is the law of land these days, is uh, you can't ban the type of firearms which have been typically and commonly owned uh, by law-abiding Americans for legitimate purposes. And that certainly includes uh, the kinds of, of handguns uh, that, that police officers and other good citizens, uh, by the millions, uh, carry and use for target shooting and, and self-protection. It, it, under Justice Scalia's opinion, uh, machine guns are not part of the right to keep and bear arms. Right. And we also need to get your contact information for our listeners. So if you could please share that so that they can get in sure. touch with you if they have any further questions. Yeah. My website is davecopel.org, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-L, davecopel.org. And uh, if you look carefully on the lower right-hand corner, there's a uh, an email uh, contact information. Great. Thank you very much. And Adam? And I urge people to buy Adam's book because it's one of the, uh, <laughs> the few genuinely moderate books uh, ever written on the topic. Great. Well, thank you. And Adam, your final thoughts? Well, I do think, as I said before, it's good that we're having a discussion about gun control again. I, I was heartened to see that uh, Dick Cheney came out yesterday and said it may be time to uh, rethink these high-capacity magazines. There's good arguments why perhaps we shouldn't uh, necessarily adopt Carolyn McCarthy's uh, bill that has been proposed. But I think the discussion is an important one to have. And as long as politicians are running away from any law that says guns in it uh, because they're afraid of a backlash, uh, then we're not going to move forward in the debate. I also think that in thinking about uh, what kinds of gun laws we need, we need to stop thinking about the tragedy that happened yesterday and start thinking about what we can do to prevent the tragedies of tomorrow. Too often in the gun control community, uh, the response is to try to solve the problem that uh, was shown in the last uh, incident without thinking more comprehensively about an approach to firearms and approach to firearm safety that can both balance uh, an individual's right to have a, a firearm for self-defense, uh, but yet do more to keep guns out of the hands of people who really shouldn't have them and who pose a danger to the rest of us. And with regards to contact information, you can find me on the web, uh, uh, Adam Winkler, uh, W-I-N-K-L-E-R, and I've got a webpage uh, through the UCLA Law School, very easy, and you can follow me on Twitter at Adam Winkler. Adam, when will the gunfight be hitting the bookstore shelves? Not not until August, unfortunately, but uh, uh, but please uh, keep your eyes out for it. And uh, I appreciate uh, Dave's kind uh, compliments uh, on the book. Uh, if the book is truly one of the genuinely moderate books that have been written on the right to bear arms, uh, he takes some of the credit for for making sure that it is such a thing. So, All right. and Dave Dave's most recent book is Aiming for Liberty: The Past, Present, and Future of Freedom and Self Defense, and that's that is available on Amazon.com and Barnes and Noble. Absolutely, and uh, please buy that too. And it's a uh, it, it's it's a collection of uh, essays on a, a bunch of topics, and a uh, hopefully an easy and uh, enjoyable read. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for being on the show today. For our listeners, uh, remember you can now get CLE credit through the West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to legaltalknetwork.com and click on the West Legal Ed Center. And as always, we're also available in the podcast library on iTunes, and all of our shows are at the LegalTalkNetwork.com, going back five and a half years or so. 
uh, should you have a slow afternoon sometime. Uh, thanks again to our guests and Craig. I look forward to talking to you next week. We'll see you then, Bob. And when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.